I'm Casada Bowman. Today, my guest is Chef Jorge Guzman. He joins us from Minneapolis, where currently he's chef and owner of Petit Leon, a neighborhood restaurant where Mexican comfort food meets fine dining. He also owns and runs Pollo Pollo El Corbon, a ghost kitchen concept operating out of the same kitchen as Petit Leon. This takeout venture focuses on whole chickens cooked on charcoal fire. And he's also partner and executive chef of a fine dining Mexican restaurant called Sueño in Dayton, Ohio. Guzman's style of cooking is progressive, drawing from many traditions, not limited to, but including French, Spanish, African, and Middle Eastern. Time spent at his grandmother's home in Mexico also has an influence on his current concepts. Most recently, he's been named as a finalist for a James Beard Award for Best Chef Midwest for 2022. Today, we'll be discussing the crossroads of having your food define you as a chef while continuously evolving and changing perspective, looking at how things happen for us, not to us. Plus, the importance of listening to your gut feeling. So I'll start by asking, as we always do, Chef Guzman, have you eaten yet? This could be a meal from today or a cup of coffee that you're drinking now, or it could be the last meal that you have a really great memory about, one that truly resonated with you. It could be one from 10 years ago or any time. I have not eaten today. I've had a cup of coffee, a few cups of coffee, and I actually just went out to eat at uh, a restaurant here in Minneapolis called Estelle, and I really don't get out much due to how much I work and how much uh, time I spend with my wife and my son, and it was, it was really good. I think the last time we went out to eat was May of last year. So funny how when we owners, we own spots and we actually don't go out a lot (laughs) to other restaurants because we just don't have time. But when we do, uh, it's a treat. So was Estelle good? Did you enjoy it? it? Yeah, it was really good. Um, Yeah, the service was great. The food was great. Uh, Ambiance was great. It was just a great neighborhood spot. And it's in St. Paul. And it felt like it, it almost felt like being in a different version of Petite. Um, mm. Food is food is very different, but super super tasty um, and unpretentious and laid back, but still refined and graceful. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to take up more of your time. It's so funny because I loved. I I almost wish that this wasn't a podcast and that we were filming a show because just now you ha- you heard some noise. You got yep. up. And it was great because I got to see your restaurant. You're literally carrying a laptop (laughs) through the kitchen, signing off on something, telling someone, no, in the middle of me talking. Um, You're busy. I am. I'm super busy. And today I'm the prep cook today and I'm the expediter at night tonight. So it's, there's no rest for the weary. Yeah. Well, you know, and I said it in the intro, but I want to say it uh, in a less formal way. Congratulations, because you just found out last week about this award. Yeah, yeah, thank you. It's uh, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, well, let's jump in. You've got a busy day. So we're going to start at the beginning. After culinary school, you end up in Minneapolis. You work at a handful of different restaurants, and then... 
in 2014, you land at the Surly Beer Hall as executive chef. You're leading a team of 75 people. And this group is really unique. They're all dedicated, passionate, like-minded. You're in a really positive environment. In 2015, you opened Surly's, Surly's Brewer's Table. So the goal of this was to create the country's best beer pairing restaurant. In 2016, Brewer's Table was named one of the 10 best new restaurants by Food & Wine magazine. In 2017, you're a finalist for a James Beard Award as Best Chef Midwest. It appears that you were laser-focused on benchmarks and you achieved your goals rapid-fire year after year. I'd love for you to reflect on that time in your life. So I have a few questions rolled into the general topic of wanting to hear how you did all of this within three years. Do you consider yourself a natural leader? Did you have a publicist helping you to get into food and wine and nominated for a James Beard Award? So the goal here is I'm trying to understand how big or how small this team was to achieve so much so fast. I think... I am, I, I, I would say I'm a natural leader. Um, I'm a hundred percent Virgo. So if somebody isn't leading me, I'm leading, I'm leading them. And, you know, I've always played sports as a kid and, um, kind of had that mentality of a team and, and knowing how to, how to lead. It's just been a somewhat natural, but also a learning process, um, throughout my career. Um, my style's definitely changed as I, as I get older. Um, and in terms of having, you know, a publicist and whatnot, I've, I've never had a publicist. Um, I'd like one right now, but <laughs> it's too expensive. Um, I, the thing, the thing about Surly was, um, it was one of like the most anticipated openings of, of a project, I think nationwide. And that's why it garnered so much attention. It was, you know, you hear about stone out in, uh, California and some of these other larger breweries and maybe Michigan that have food components and whatnot. Um, but what, it, what those food components, there, there really wasn't a focus on the food. It was just kind of, here's this awesome brewery. We're going to have food to go along with it. And certainly when they hired me, didn't know that I would really focus on food. And they also wanted to focus on being the best at the beer hall or our catering, our food truck, our finer dining restaurant. Um, and the owner Omar was like, I want the best beer pairing restaurant in the country. And he gave us a lot of leash to do it. Um, and I had a really amazing team at Brewer's table and, and in the beer hall, they were kind of two separate entities. And the first year I really focused on the beer hall and, you know, we did amazing. And then when Brewer's table opened, I kind of shifted my focus and, kind of stayed up there and that's where a lot of those accolades started happening. Um, but I had a, a really solid team in the beer hall managing that aspect. <clears throat> I mean, the, the beer hall is what carried the, the restaurants. We would do, you know, un, unbelievable numbers in, in both financially and uh, cover counts. We would do 5,000 people a night. And it's just like, I mean, you think about that. It's like, it's, it's just, it's nuts. It was so busy, but at Brewer's Table was the first restaurant where I was actually allowed to just kind of like 
do me. Um, and I, like I said, I had really great chefs. Actually, my, my sous chef at Brewer's Table is now my chef de cuisine here at Petit Leon. So I, I kind of think he's kind of like my lucky charm. He's the only guy that's been with me throughout all like the last eight years where I've been receiving these accolades. And he's a big reason why I am successful. But the team was a big reason. We were all very focused and everyone bought into my ideas and, and followed suit and were a real pleasure to work with and for. I didn't just work. They didn't just work for me. I also worked for them. And they... They were all chefs in their in their right mind as well. So um, when you have a caliber kitchen like that, where everyone has either run a kitchen or had that experience, um, it definitely elevates your food game and it allows you to do more and push more because people are more experienced. Mm-hmm. If it was a younger kitchen, I don't think it would have happened. Um, but with everyone having so much experience and having seen so many things, uh, being collaborative was really like an amazing thing because so many people could bring ideas to the table that maybe I hadn't thought of or that my chefs hadn't thought of. So it was a really great place. So despite all that success, within months, the restaurant shuts down. The owners don't give any answers. In that moment, you realize that your identity somewhat was wrapped up in what you were doing, in your food, and in your team. What does that feel like for you? And today, do you move through life any different? Did that experience teach you to create balance and boundaries between your work life and personal life? Or do you take a hybrid approach? I'm trying to take a hybrid approach. It's really hard. You know, when you talk about quality of life in the restaurant industry, it's really difficult, especially when you're a small restaurant. So for instance, like I know that I can't work the way I used to work because one, I have a family Two, I, I don't put myself first. I still don't. And my body's paying the price. My, you know, my family sometimes pays the price. Um, but like, for instance, right now we're, we're down a cook. So the restaurant's still going to open, which means, well, I'm the owner. I have to pick up the slack. Um, and so my quality of life goes out the window and so does the quality of life of my family because they don't get to see me. Um, and that, I think, is the difference in our industry versus, you know, corporate America where well, Joe doesn't show up on, on Friday while his work just waits on Monday. Um, well, we have to actually cook the steak on Friday, you know, to make it to the plate that night. So it's different. Um, but what we try to do is have a four-day work week, which really helps out. Um, and that's everyone in our kitchen, including myself and my chefs, unless it's unless we just can't. But for the most part, all our cooks have four-day work weeks, and we try to adhere to that. So that's where that hybrid model comes into in the play, where two days really isn't enough when it's such a physical job that your first day you're just trying to recover from the physicality of it. And then your second day you're trying to do stuff with your kids and your errands and just life in general, and then you're back to work. So that third day is, is really important for, for all of us. And my, my chef's got twins. I have a kid. Um, we need that extra time with our family. So that won't change. Um, but at some point, I would love to not be working a station. You know, I'm 42 years old and I'm tired and it hurts. You know, it's, it's where I've been doing this for 25 years and it's catching up because I've never put myself first. Um, and I'm still stuck in the identity of being a chef. And that's something that I'm mentally thinking about because I don't want to be that anymore. 
you know, it's Chef Jorge Guzman. It's not just Jorge Guzman as a person. Because all I've done is work so hard for so long that I haven't given myself the time to be anything else. Mm. And so as I get older, it's a it's a real tough dynamic to kind of battle with. It's like, well, what what would I be if I wasn't a chef? What would I do? And I have no idea because I just haven't had the time to actually to do it. I know I have things I like to, to do, but honestly, I don't even know if I have any hobbies because I constantly work and I'm thinking about work and, you know, it's that rat race. It's, you know, part of it is it's an artistic approach. You know, cooking is not just, it's not just a, a job. It's also, I feel like an artistic outlet and it's, it's a romantic job because it, it, it is a, it's a trade. It's not a, it's not just a job. And a lot of times trades, tradesmen have a real respect for what they do because it's hands-on. And when you finish doing what you're doing, you can tangibly see something versus other jobs where you're just either pushing paper or computer work or whatnot. Um, at the end of the day, one, we get judged by everybody and, and anybody. So that's, you know, you have to be on top of your game. Two, we get awarded if we're good and that means something the james beard award means something you know it it's been a lifelong pursuit for me since i was 18 years old i've wanted that award and that's a long time um and i'm gonna manifest it and say when i win this year i have a an inkling that my body is just gonna give like all that built up stress and anxiety from the from the, for so long is just going to finally release and i can't wait for that honestly um even when i think about it i can feel my my body giving yeah. and it's it's a really strange um, place to be in a previous article you said quote that feeling that breaks your spirit your heart and your resolve. I had those feelings day in and day out for two weeks without fail. And this is in response to after that sudden closing. I think it was for two years. Was it? Yeah, it was, it was two years. Um, at, when Surly closed, I didn't know that I was in, uh, I was grieving. I was grieving for a long time, probably still a little bit, um, but not like I used to be. And a lot of, I think part of that was what, what happened to me in, in Wisconsin, I think that was part of those feelings of like hopelessness and, and whatnot. And it was because you do, you work so hard and your career just goes up and then it goes all the way to the bottom. And as someone who cares about that, um, it affects you. And I think it affects a lot of us in the industry. You know, there's plenty of people that have been vocal about what this does to them. And there's been people that have gone so far as to take their own life because of uh, how demanding the job is and how stressful it is and how important those accolades can be. And when they're taken away or when they're not given it's, you know, I think part of that is part of the mental health aspect that we deal with as, as uh, a community in the, in the restaurant world. You know, we, we take anybody and everybody um, mm -hmm. You don't have to have a college education. You don't need a high school education. You could be right out of jail. It doesn't matter. You could have the worst family experience of your life. We'll, we'll still take you as a cook, but a lot of times that comes with baggage. Um, yeah. And so we deal with a lot of different personalities and different um, 
cultures and different ethnicities and, and it all is this amazing group of people but a, a lot of times some of those those people come with things that and I'm, me included come with things that you know I don't know uh, mental aspect challenges and we don't have the resources because we can't pay enough or we don't make enough to to go and get help yeah. I think that's a real struggle for a lot of us in the industry so for someone who I mean, there could be a chef right now, an up and coming chef or a well-known chef who's listening and they're saying, listen, maybe you were in that headspace for two years, but I'm in that headspace right now. How did you, if you're looking back at that time, mentally try to keep it together? Any knowledge or advice or real life experience that you can pass along to all of us so we can help ourselves? It was really hard. Um, I'm I'm a pretty persistent person, and I'm I don't know. I, I guess what I was going to say is like I, I know that I can dig myself out because I've had to before. But at, during those two years, I think honestly, what helped is that my wife was pregnant, and it's, I didn't have a choice. Like, if I leave, I leave both of them, and that was a big motivational factor of like, okay, I got to figure out how to get out of this. And I, I tried to go get help and it, it didn't work. Um, wasn't the right therapist. I've, I've never had luck with talk therapy. Um, doesn't, I don't, I don't think it works for me. My wife was supportive as, as much as she could be. I don't know how to, you have to find someone to help you um, when you're like that. You, it's very difficult to get out of that by yourself. Um, I think it takes a lot of mental and emotional discipline. And sometimes when you're in that space, you don't have it. Um, and for me, it was, it was fleeting moments of hopelessness where I would feel like absolutely empty and like, what am I going to do? And in a split second, it was like, well, I could just take my life. But th- then I would, I would bounce back and be like, well, that's not an option, but there's people that that's how they are all day long, just trying to get to what we call normal. And that has got to be so difficult. And that I don't know how to help somebody like that, except to let them know that my phone is here. I'm here two, three in the morning, whatever you need. Like if you tell me that you're thinking about taking your life, I take that seriously. I told people, I told one or two people and, they never followed up with me. And I found that so unbelievable because it's so vulnerable to share that with somebody and then for that person to just dismiss it. And I think that's part of the fear of having someone, if I'm going to say this to somebody, how are they going to respond? So you just don't say anything. And I think that's, it's scary to share that information because you don't know how it's going to be received. Um, and two, it's, it's a very personal feeling. Um, so as somebody that's gone through it, if anybody had ever tells me that I'm on watch, I'm calling them, I'm checking in, I'm make, it's not just a monthly or a yearly thing. It's like, okay, how's this person doing next year? How are they doing the year after that? You know, it's, you can't just listen for an hour and then ghost them. You know, it's, you have to be and it's work. It's work for both people. You know, it's, I think that 
that is the, the biggest thing is to find somebody that you know that will be there to help you through it mm. and to try to get professional help. Um, you know, I don't know what 800 numbers do for people, but right. I, I know there's people out there that care. And to that effect, I would say if anyone is listening and thinking about that, if you have no one, absolutely no one in your life, shoot us an email. But I, I think the power of it is, like you said, finding someone in your life who actually gives a shit deeply, yeah. not not fleeting. I'm talking about someone who is, like you said, going to follow up. That seems to be the takeaway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So during this time, you had lots of meetings. You knew that you needed to be careful after the last restaurant that you gave your blood, your sweat, your tears to abruptly closed. But in the meantime, a year flies by. An opportunity arrives where you would have ownership in a restaurant. So you move to Wisconsin and become a partner in a new project. Today, you were outspoken that in retrospect, you should have listened to your gut instinct and passed on this job. Here's what you said in a previous article. Quote, on my very first day, it became painfully clear I'd made a mistake. This man with his grandiose plans had no ability to make them happen. It was the first time in my life that I felt an acute stress response, and it was telling me to run like hell. That ended up being 11 months of empty promises and lies, which ultimately led to your family living paycheck to paycheck. I think it's human instinct that in a moment that our mind feels even a glimpse of desperation, it goes straight into hustle mode. In your case, it pushed you to Wisconsin. But thanks to your journey today, you are literally blessing us with firsthand life experience that can positively influence all of our lives. But looking back at that time, feeling stuck in a toxic environment, can you describe that gut instinct and that acute stress response that was telling you to run like hell? Yeah, this this was the time, those two years where I was feeling that hopelessness. So I consulted for this job. They convinced me to move and take a salary to Wisconsin and we're going to make a a food scene. Um, the first day I got down there, um, I basically found out that the, the gentleman that had these plans was an addict. Um, and that was my first time really having a first hand account on how to deal with someone that's going through that. And it was, it was all, it was just, like I said, a lot of empty promises, uh, lies, uh, avoidance, um, and, you know, I had just come off of Surly, and here I am working at this distillery that couldn't even distill vodka correctly and making food for people that, honestly, I don't think appreciated it in a very small kitchen. It was just the complete 180 from where I had just gone. And that's when I started to dip into this depression because I was like, oh my God, what the fuck did I just do? And that's when I start, you know, comparing myself to my peers and seeing what they're doing and, and I'm stuck in, in this job. And when I found out that he was an addict, my, my body just had this response that I'd never had. It almost felt like battery acid going through my whole system. 
And I was just like, fuck, you know, I, I didn't even know what to do. I, I called my wife. She came back home early from a vacation she was on. And I toughed it out for 11 months and got to the point where, you know, I basically told, told them to fuck off. And then three days later, they fired me for some made up reason. And that's where, you know, part of it was a relief. Part of it was like, what am I going to do now? Um, and that's, you know, what you mentioned the hustle. Like I had to hustle, you know, it was tough. When you're in this job and feeling stuck, you start comparing yourself to other chefs in the industry and you start feeling that you weren't doing enough, that you'd be forgotten. And when I was reading this, it reminded me of a quote, impatience is a sign of hurrying, hurrying is a sign of worrying, worrying is a sign of fear, and fear is a sign that you've temporarily forgotten that it's never too late to change your thoughts and therefore change your things. How did you change your thoughts? I'm still in the process of that. Um, this is my own battle of, I try not to compare myself anymore to, to other people. I think, you know, it's just not a healthy thing to do, but it's part of this industry where you're judged you know, constantly. So when you get a bad review, it sucks. It's not something you can just blow off because it's personal, regardless of someone's saying, don't take it personally. Well, how could I not? I've just worked 12 hours and put a lot of mental thought and physical, you know, action into creating something that someone just said, well, this is God awful. It's like, well, that's it's a very personal thing. So separating yourself from all of that can be very hard in this job. Um, comparing myself to others, now, I'm now taking the approach of when I feel envy, I'm looking at it as this person is a expander for me. So if they can do it, I can do it. And I can reach out to them and ask them, how did you do this? Versus feeling jealous or envious of what they have. It's just, it's a portal to, to show you you can do whatever you want in this world. And if you don't know how to do it, find someone that's doing it and reach out to them because they will hopefully show you or tell you or give you advice on how to do it. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a Sims game. You know, <laughs> the world is like a Sims game. It's if you can mentally grasp manifestation mm -hmm. and the concept of it and have your thoughts be positive and think in that manner, then it, it'll happen. But if you get stuck in the past and you get stuck in, in envy and jealousy and, and the what ifs and all that, then you're going to be stuck back there. And I think this is my transition in the last two years. And it's a conscious effort because there are times where I still revert back and it's, I have to like tell myself, stop, like you can't do that. You know, that's not the kind of person you want to be. You want to be this person. And it's being happy for people that are, are, winning you know you know I, I, if someone succeeds like good for them like because it's fucking hard you know and if someone regardless of how they got there well great good you know it's like it's hard to do it's hard to be that person you, you have to be the bigger person and a lot of people can't be that um and it takes awareness and it takes 
it takes work every day, which is mentally exhausting when you have everything else going on. Mm-hmm. So I look at it as I want certain things. I don't care if you think that that's a bad thing. You can go fuck yourself. You're not my person. But if somebody else wants them and they don't know how to get them, I'll, and I've done it. I have no problem sharing, but I'm going to manifest my future. And I want it to be a certain, I want it to look a certain way. I want to be financially secure. I want a James Beard award. I want to be a food and wine best in restaurant. You know, I want those things. And who cares? Yeah. You know, like, who gives a shit what people want? Like, let them have what they want. And yeah. if I work hard enough for it, I deserve it. If I didn't work hard, then I have no business saying that, but I do. Yeah. So I think that's kind of where I'm at right now is I see people and I see what, they, what they're doing. And I, I don't get envious. I just see that it's possible. And then my wife and I are big on manifesting. It's mm-hmm. like, okay. And it's thinking about the things that you want or deserve and every day thinking about them and saying them out loud and taking steps to get there. So yeah. I think that's where I'm at these days. Beautiful. Well, and you touched on it, but I want to go back to it for a second to live in that moment. Um, just because I want to talk about it and tie it in with what you're talking about now. So you finally reach your breaking point. As you said, you confront your partner's family and you tell them, and, and you know, and you said, I told them fuck off, but mm-hmm. the words that you said though, it it's, I love it because you're, for me, when I was reading it, you're finally standing in your truth in this moment. And I saw and felt that power. So you say, quote, if my wife weren't eight months pregnant, and I didn't need the insurance, I would have told you all to go fuck yourselves a long time ago. And as you said, you were fired three days later. But you felt amazing. You felt the weight of the world had been lifted off of you. And I'm a firm believer that in life, things happen for us, not to us. And I've seen it firsthand. I've lived it too many times where something seemingly negative happens. And then six months later, I say, oh, that's why that happened. And then I clearly see the beauty of the path that was carved out for me. Now that belief is ingrained in me. So it allows me to live life without expectations. And when shit happens, as it always does, I don't fight it. And I try my best to not attach any emotions to it. But you speaking your truth granted you this freedom to leave a toxic place and allowed you to return to the Twin Cities to do pop-ups based on your charcoal grilled chicken idea. So I want to talk about that homecoming to the city that you love. And you're trying to find this permanent home for your pop-up. What is this time like in your life? Um. I mean, it was, it, we were scram- we're scrambling, you know, my wife and I are, you know, COVID, remember COVID is part of this now too, where all of a sudden I have to empty my 401k because I don't know what's going to happen. Um, trying to make money to pay bills, trying to move back to the city during a pandemic and George Floyd, you know, I, I, there was no processing anything that was happening. It was just, okay, we got to got to go. And so you're just, it's fight or flight, you know, and I'm really good at fight or flight because that's what I've been in my entire life. So, and I fight, so I just keep moving forward. So I wasn't 
there was no homecoming because we were in such turmoil in the city, you know. And we opened Petit Leon with takeout and boards on our windows because of the, you know, the crime that was happening. I think that homecoming has started maybe now. Um, we're still, t- it's still hard to process for me because it's go, go, go. You know, I, I don't think I process things very well. I think it's probably one of my, my opportunities to be able to sit down and actually, you know, enjoy the fact that I got nominated or enjoy the fact that I get to spend all day with my son or my wife. And, you know, I don't know if I am able to do that very well. So it was just, it was just tumultuous. It was just, you know, go, go, go and figure out how to get there was how it was. But in the midst of that, actually before that, while you're still in Wisconsin, you reconnect with a chef friend. And you guys talk about how the culture of the industry needs to change. A few weeks later, he texts you. And that day you become partners. You guys start forming two things, a plan to open a restaurant and a vision for the culture that you both want to create. You refer to that initial text as a life-changing text. It provided a light for you at the end of the tunnel. This is the beginning of when things begin to start to flow just a little bit for you. You are driving back to Wisconsin. You happen to see a for lease sign in the window of a vacant space. Four months later, your restaurant, Petit Leon, was underway. So if you could talk about how you formed your hospitality group and what the ultimate plan was in combining as a group to both achieve your individual goals while also shaking up the industry as a whole. I think we're still trying to define that culture. Um, it's a work in progress. Uh, there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of people involved. You know, like any anybody, any company. There's we're only, we're only a year old. You know, less than. So we're still in the midst of trying to figure out who and what we are. Two people that work here and to everybody else. You know, we still are trying to formulate um, our community outreach program for who we are. We just can't take and take. We also need to give back. And my partner, Ben, is working on that. In terms of the service charge, it's it's twofold. It, one, it allows us to actually pay more of a, a living wage um, to our employees. And that was the reason for that is a 20% service charge instead of the tip model. And part of that was just you know, also financially smart because of the rising minimum wage in Minneapolis, you know, it's, it would have been such a discrepancy between what cooks made and servers made once that wage was set without the service charge that it would have probably been really, really difficult to find cooks. And it's still hard to find cooks. Um, And so part of that allowed us to really pay cooks a wage that they hadn't seen before. And I think a lot of people are doing that in the city. There's plenty of restaurants with a service charge, and that's where that money goes. Uh, in terms of, you know, culture, my kitchen culture has always been one of open-door policy. Um, and we don't yell and scream. We talk about everything. Um, we try to give back as much as possible um, to, to everybody. And it's hard. It's taxing. It's emotionally exhausting when you have so many individuals that you deal with on a daily basis that all have their individualistic needs and you're the one that's always giving. Um, very rarely do you get, you get back. Um, and that's part of being an owner and a manager. And I think it's something that 
employees sometimes don't realize is we're just going to take and take and take and I need and I need and I need. And yeah, you have a job, but we pay you for your job. Um, and there's expectations that come with it. But at the end of the day, and I, I had a cook last night text me, thank you. And that's the first time in a long time that I can remember having a cook take the time to say, because of you. And that means a lot. Uh, we don't get that very often. Um, or at least I don't. And I feel like I, I try my best to put them first, like I do with everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so the culture, like I said, is still a work in progress. And it's, I think it always will be. It's always adjusting to what the norms are or creating a new norm or figuring out what the rest of the city is doing and adjusting because if so-and-so does this, it can affect what happens here because maybe people like that model better and okay, well let's take a page out of their book and put it in our book or maybe we're doing something that they like and we can share what we're doing. And we're a very collaborative city in that way uh, where I don't think I don't hold my cards close to my chest and I have peers that don't either. And we do talk. And so I think that's part of it. Yeah. In the past two years, you mentioned COVID. Our industry has taken a major hit. So many people left the industry. We keep seeing the headline, the great resignation. So many people saying, I want to work from home. So here's what I think. It would appear that many of these departures were from millennials especially white millennials, perhaps from a middle to upper middle class background who thought this industry was really cool and trendy for maybe the last 10 to 15 years. Privilege was the undertone of their time in this industry. And the pandemic was a reset. Today, it shows you who's left and most importantly, who is still here. Those of us who are still here understand that this is more than a job, and it can be a really beautiful, fulfilling profession that we navigate each day. It's an art form. But now I'm going to quote you now, Jorge. How do you stop caring about something that has become part of your identity? It's more than a job. I'm a chef to my core. And I don't see how I could be anything else. Please expand on that idea. Yeah. Um, I think back to the identity of who I am. For so long, you know, I've, I've been cooking. I've been a chef. Um, and it's something that I, I love to do, both the food side and the people side. And it's hospitality, which is, you know, service. Um. And while at the end of the day, sometimes I feel like I just don't have any more gas, I keep coming back. And so I I just don't think I could leave it um, for many reasons. Um, Deep down, this is what I was probably meant to do. And I, I have a platform to help shape other people's lives and to affect other people. And I think, I think that matters. And one of the things being Latino and being at, at a very high level of what I do is inspirational to other Latinos, uh, Latinx uh, people. And 
I think that's something that maybe people don't think about. I don't present Latino, uh, but I am. My name's Jorge, and my whole family lives there. And for me, it's if I can be successful doing what I am, then others can as well. And this industry is built on the backs of our people, like Dominicans, Latinos, um, Haitians, you know, we all, all the immigrants work in the best restaurants in New York, the best restaurants in California. Um, there's not some millennial picking, picking garlic. Mm -hmm. There's not some millennial doing the hard work like you, you know, mentioned very few sometimes there are, but that type of work is, um, it's not for everybody. For us, it's, it's, I think it's twofold. It's one, it's hard work and we're used to it and we're good at it. Two, like I said before, if I can elevate my people and show them that it's possible, then I think that's a positive thing. So for me to just dip out is I'm, I dip out on them as well. And so it's not just me. Um, so at the end of the day, I have to remember that what I talk about, what I present, it's not only representing myself, but also hopefully representing other people. Yeah. So after 25 years, 25 years now, right? You've been in the industry. Now you're creating an environment where people can thrive, learn, teach, be supportive. And you're focusing on opportunities for advancement for people of color, for women. You're building a workplace where everyone from the bartender to the dishwasher earns a living wage and has a voice in decisions that are being made. You mentioned each check includes an 18% service charge, which contributes to employee salaries. How do you feel about the business today? And do you feel, I know it's only a year in, I know it's, it's up in flux, you kind of touched on it, but generally speaking, do you think that you are successfully creating a healthy and sustainable workplace? Yeah, I think we are. It's, um, it is sustainable to a degree because it's hard. It's hard work. Um, and not everybody's cut out for that. Um, it's physical. Um, you deal with a lot of different personalities in the front. So it, it does take a certain kind of person to be able to withstand what working in a restaurant is like, but the environment that we create is a safe one. Um, and it's a positive one. And we can't control the outside influence, but we can control how we respond to it and how we as owners and managers support. And that, that we do. So I would say we are creating a, a healthy environment. Last October, you wrote a post on Instagram that drew me in. It was an excerpt from a conversation that you were having with your prep cook at the time. I'm going to read part of it now. We spoke at length about how when art becomes monetized, it loses its heart and soul. It's something that we both keep in the back of our minds as cooks. I told him that I feel my food is in flux, caught between what was, what I'm trying to do, and who I am as a chef. I want to make food that when it gets to your table is delicious, identifiable, and still gives you thought and pause. I want my food to impress, but at the same time, make you feel so at ease that it becomes a second thought until hours later. 
It's challenging right now because my food appetite is evolving into the space, into my team, and into where I am as a chef. It's also exciting to be in this transition and actually be aware that I'm going through it. It's not easy having your food define you as a chef, especially when you might be evolving into something different. You know, I was blown away. It was just so beautifully written. It's a beautiful description of all those emotions. And I'd love for you to dive a little deeper into this crossroads of having your food define you as a chef yet continuously evolve. I think it's it's tough because as chefs, I think a lot of us have a definitive way that we would like to cook but not all of us have the pedigree or the repertoire to be able to do that. Um, and a lot of us are at the, the beck and call of who our guests are and where we are in the country and what, you know, where we are in a neighborhood. So for instance, Petit Leon, while I would love to have a traditional full on Mexican kitchen, I don't know if it would work in this space and I don't think we would be busy enough. So Petit becomes this hybrid of a neighborhood restaurant that allows me to do flavors of Mexico, but also allows me to do a really great cheeseburger that people love. The city loves it. And as a chef, that's where like that battle happens. It's like, well, am I compromising or am I just being smart? Um, and it's being smart. If you don't compromise, you don't stay open. Now, chef like, you know, chefs like Eric Repair, Daniel Balud, or all these, you know, high-end chefs, the food and wine guys and whatever, like, they almost can do what they want because they have this, one, they have this media behind them. Two, they're so established in what they are and constantly in the eye that you go to them for what they're doing. You know, that's, that's what it is. Like, if you go to New York, there's certain restaurants that you go to because that's what they do. If you go to San Francisco, the same thing. There's everywhere in the country. Um, Gavin Kaysen here in town. Demi is his, his gem. I'm going to do what I want to do, and I'm Gavin Kaysen, and people are going to fucking come and eat here because I'm Gavin Kaysen. And it's true, and they do, and good for him. I'm just Jorge Guzman. I don't know if I can do that. So I have to be smart about it. I have to be able to know who I'm cooking for, make them also happy and at the same time make myself and my staff happy with what we, we do. And my food is good and it tastes good and it's tasty. But at the same time, it's still, when we do menu changes, you're stuck in that, okay, what are we going to do? Is it going to be an easy presentation? Is it going to be a lot of prep? And I think every chef goes through that. Um, it's just, it's a constant battle of what are we going to put on the menu now and where is it going to fall? And a lot of it has to do with like the, the flow of your kitchen, how busy you are, big your staff is at the time. Um, if you're short a cook, I'm not going to make a huge prepped item because who's going to prep it? So a lot goes into it. And some restaurants are always staffed. Like the ones I mentioned before, you know, there's people lining the doors to work for those guys. And so when you have a staff of 40 and you're only serving 30 people a night, what a luxury, you know, like what a great place to, to work because right? you can really dive into it and you can do all those really like amazing things that you normally can't do in a, and what most restaurants are, you know, we're a, we're a neighborhood joint that does really great food. And I'm really proud of what we are and where, where we are. And I think every day it's a battle to, to find that identity, but we're getting 
I think we're like 95% there with the team. The energy that I'm seeing around you, you know, just you've got a lot of big energy around you. So when you say, you know, I'm just Jorge Guzman, I'm like, you are Jorge Guzman. Like it's, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, you gotta I have humility. You do have to have humility, but just when I see you and I see the chefs that you mentioned, which are great. Um, when I see the future though, when I'm looking 15, 20 years down the line, and we kind of saw this with the pandemic, the reset that I referred to before, I see you being that years from now because the industry's changing. Do you know what I mean? It's just, yeah. for me, I think that accessibility is a big thing. And, and all of these things, like the, the industry as a whole is in a big, it's in a flux. It's changing yeah. right now. And so it's very interesting. I actually think that you are kind of, in the forefield moving beyond that with everything you're dealing with. And a lot of those other chefs are dealing with that. You'd be surprised. They actually yeah. are dealing with those repercussions from the pandemic while that's been a part of your life. So do you mean right. like you're already ahead of the curve there? Just, just for, just, you know, mark my words, you know, 20 years from now, shoot me an email and be like, Hey, I will. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, how do you continue to find inspiration each year? It's been tough the last two years because we're, travel was kind of out of the question. I think that's part of it. It's, I mean, social media is huge. You just scroll Instagram, search for something, and you can look at a million photographs. And I think that's a big way to do it. Travel is a big one. And then just going out to eat when you can. Those are the, the biggest ways to get inspired. Um, those are the biggest ways I get inspired. Yeah. What does your ideal future look like? Waking up every morning, having coffee, not being stressed, not having to think about, I got to get to the restaurant today because I got to put the fries on for tonight's service. Um, having my restaurant staffed to where I don't have to be here anymore um, and I can just pop in and out play a more of a mentor role than working a function daily. Uh, really, that's it. Yeah. It's more time with my family. Yeah. Have there ever been any signs or synchronicities in your life that led to new opportunities for you in this industry? And if there have, if you could describe those moments to us. I haven't had one of those moments yet. Um, I know that like the Poyo Poyo concept I think when I first had, when I was in Tulum like eight years ago and I ate that, that was probably that moment. Like, okay, this has to be a thing that I do. And now I'm trying to do it. And I think that might've been like that kind of aha moment. Mm -hmm. Cause I went that week, I went there six times. I was like, if I'm going six times to eat this, I can do this back home. I think people will respond in kind. So, yeah, that is, but other, but, other than that, I, I really, ha I don't think I've had time yet. I haven't had a lot of time to do much. So. You know what, though? Synchronicities are probably, they're happening all around you. For me, yeah. until I kind of zoned in and tuned into them, then all of a sudden, it's it's like when you're doing your manifestations. Yeah. It's the same thing. You'll start it's to the see thing. them more. Yeah. You'll start to see yeah. them more. They're called pings. Yes. Um, my wife 
does that. And it's like, if there's a ping, it's like, okay, go follow whatever that is. And like, I've had a few, um, and I am aware, I do think about it, like, because everything, everything that happens is energy daily. And it's like, someone's going to walk in or something's going to happen. You're going to have a conversation or an email is going to be sent or something is going to be, it's going to be something to grab onto or something to let go of. And so, yeah, I agree with you. It's like, you have to be aware. Like you got to think about it. Yeah. Um, I think little ones happen daily. And I think sometimes you're going through one that will, won't show up for another five years. You know, yeah, I have, I think one happening, but I can't speak to it because I have an NDA. So, <laughs> so yeah. Well, I wish yeah. you much success with that one that's in the process. We'll have to talk in the future, another podcast. <laughs> um, a flow state also known as being in the zone, is the mental state when a person is performing an activity and is fully immersed in a feeling of energized focus, clarity, and enjoyment in the entire process. It doesn't feel like work. It's effortless attention that you're giving the activity. You get a euphoric feeling. It's during this altered state of consciousness that your mind functions at its peak and a sense of happiness flows through your body. So the example I usually use for my guests is when I'm at my restaurant, no one is there. Um, I usually put on some music. I'm just like vibing out and I need to come up with, you know, some recipes for my menu for, you know, beverage menu, let's say I'm making some cocktails and I'm, I'm just in the zone. No one's there. And then the music, I'm just, for me, I just start vibing out and I'm getting into a good headspace and then the recipes just flow out of me. So as a chef, have you ever reached this state? If you have, please describe your surroundings leading up to it and what it felt like being in that state. It's, it's when I open a cookbook and then it's all of a sudden there's 20 cookbooks open and then there's a computer open and then it's just, you just have so many ideas coming through. Um, and it's usually late at night and it's why I don't read a lot of cookbooks anymore because I get stuck so I think that's kind of my moment of flow. And also when you're cooking, you're in a, it's a, like a repetitive state, almost like a meditative, meditative state because you're repeating the same motion that you should be anyway as a cook, you know, this goes here, this goes here. So it's a, you're not thinking, so your, your mind can rest. Yeah. And so your body takes over and you kind of, you know, you can be able, you can just kind of like take a little break and maybe that's when ideas do pop up or when you're, when I'm in nature too, it's kind of like, I can just relax. Mm. And I think if I'm relaxed, I can generally create either it's when I do my best thinking or have ideas and whatnot. We're at the end. <laughs> Chef <laughs> Guzman, thank you for sharing your story with us. I believe that the journey is always greater than the destination. It's on the path that we learn, evolve, and encounter lessons that shape us into our best selves. I always like ending the podcast by asking if there's any takeaway that you'd like to leave with listeners that can positively influence their lives. It could be something that we just discussed, a lesson you've learned on your journey, or general life advice that you live by. I think the biggest one was um, when you find yourself being envious of other people, look at yourself and then look at those people and know that what they have, you also can have. Mm. 
that's a big one. Because a lot of us are envious. It's just natural. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a natural thing. I am. Yeah. It's it's just a human emotion. Yeah. And I loved, I think, the word for that that you used earlier, expanded. Like expander. 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 Yeah. yeah love that. Yeah. That's that's my wife. <laughs> Great. She's a, a very positive influence on me. What's her name? Jill. Shout out to Jill. I like that. I'm gonna use expander. <laughs> awesome. Well, where can people follow you? Uh, Instagram's the best. It's just at Jorge Guzman one. And, you know, the Petit Leon MPLS Instagram also. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't already, follow Have You Eaten Yet wherever you get your podcasts.